1: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Mina Kim. Well, if you thought politics would calm down after the recall election, guess again. A three-dimensional chess game is underway in Washington, with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi trying to balance competing needs and demands as President Biden's agenda hangs in the balance. And here in California, fresh off his recall victory, Governor Gavin Newsom rolled out vaccine mandates for school children, signed legislation promoting housing, homeless programs, police accountability, and more. We'll get all that, plus the latest on a major oil spill threatening the Southern California coast. We'll be talking with KQED's politics team. That's next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer. In today for Mina Kim. Well, the wild ride in Washington is expected to continue this week with President Biden and Democratic leaders in the Congress trying to find a pathway to yes, knitting together competing and often contradictory demands from progressives and moderates, and testing the vaunted political skills of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Meanwhile, here in California, Governor Newsom is issuing vaccine mandates for school kids and signing landmark legislation on housing and homelessness, police reform and more. We're going to get to all that with KQED's politics team in just a few minutes, but we're going to begin this morning with the major oil spill that has closed beaches in Orange County, a leak apparently from an underwater pipeline. It's all washed up in Huntington Beach, and this morning there are a lot of questions about how this happened and why. Joining us is KQED's Saul Gonzalez. He hosts the Morning California Report, heard throughout the state. Good morning, Saul. Good morning, Scott. First, tell us where you are and uh, what the scene is.
2: Well, I'm on a beach in Orange County, just north of the oil spill. And can I tell you what a bizarre sight it is, Scott, first off? So I just got here as about 50 guys started to fan out in those hazard suits, you know, those white hazard suits. They're out walking the beach looking for small clumps of oil that they haven't caught in past cleanups. But as they're doing that, that assessment work and that cleanup work, out in the ocean, there are surfers surfing. There are some people walking their dogs, at least along this uh, stretch of the beach, so you have this combination of the very strange and the very normal, at least on this spot of the coast.
1: I'm surprised to hear there are surfers out there. Does that mean that the, the spill has been contained?
2: I don't know, Scott. I really can't say if they're just kind of going to the water and they're not supposed to or they have permission. I must say the beach itself is there's sparsely. There, you know, it's, it's a weekday morning, so keep that in mind. There are very relatively few people on the beach uh, except for the cleanup crews. But in the water, a lot of surfers.
1: Yeah, and and, uh, my understanding is uh, that it was a broken pipeline connected to an offshore oil platform that caused the spill. What can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, well, apparently uh, people on Friday, people started reporting a a smell, a strange odor in the air of petroleum, of oil, but it was officially uh, recognized as an oil spill sometime on Saturday morning it was reported, and the response started. um, They're looking at They were looking at a a plume of oil about six miles long off the coast. Uh, That cleanup work continues uh, being headed up by the Coast Guard and state and local officials as well, state and local agencies. There's a big concern here, Scott, along this stretch of coast when it comes to wildlife habitat. There's some wetlands, some of the few surviving wetlands along the Southern California coast. Big concern that the petroleum will intrude into that sensitive habitat and destroy a lot of wildlife in in, in a California, you know, precious ecosystem. So concerns there. Um, And then local officials are starting to ask Washington, they're starting to ask the state of California uh, for official assistance to to help clean this up. Because they're expecting, you know, they're saying the beach could be closed for some days, at the very least, uh, maybe weeks and maybe even months. And that is a, a hard hit to a community, Huntington, which calls itself Surf City, USA.
1: And do you know, has the, the, has the break in that pipeline been fixed? Has it been patched? Do we know the status of that? Is there still any oil spilling uh, into the ocean?
2: The company, uh, which is out of Houston, uh, a subsidiary of this Houston-based company, owns, owns the infrastructure. They say it was patched over the weekend. If it's leaking, it's, it's, it's leaking very very little to, to nothing at all. Uh, but they still have to do more assessment on, on, on the scope of that rupture. And how much work has to be done, which seems to me it'll be it'll be inevitable that they'll have to do more work on that pipeline. Something else to consider here, Scott. I mean, you know, we talk about these oil rigs. I mean, I'm looking at one right now. They are right off the coast. I mean, they look it looks like you can almost reach out and grab one. They're very, very close to the shoreline. People are used to seeing the oil infrastructure along this part of the Southern California coastline. But, of course, no, nothing prepares you for a big oil spill like this.
1: And this is, a, of course, uh, an iconic part of California, as you said, uh, a big surf spot. A lot of tourists go there. What are the local officials saying? I know there have been some questions about whether the Coast Guard and local officials, for example, coordinated fast enough when this first uh, surfaced on uh, Friday.
2: Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of future discussion about that and whether or not authorities responded fast enough. I think the immediate reaction, though, is just anger, anger at the at at the company uh, for this. The company's had other safety violations in the past. It's uh, uh, energy out of houston texas and a uh, subsidiary runs the, the the pipeline here in local waters and i think that's they they want they, they're, they're angry and they want it cleaned up pronto or as soon as possible that seems to be the reaction because the lifeblood of this community is the water right
3: yep. and
2: you're going to feel the impact economic impact of this oil spill pretty quickly unless they open up the water and open up the sand
1: All right. Saul Gonzalez, host of the California Report Morning Show, uh, reporting this morning from Orange County. Saul, thanks so much. Thank you. And we have a lot more to talk about this hour. In addition to the oil spill, we've gathered KQED's politics and government team, including our politics correspondent and my co-host on Political Breakdown, Marisa Lagos. Morning. Good morning, Marisa. Also here, the rest of our team, uh, Katie Orr, who came down from Sacramento <laughs> to be with us. Nice to have all of you here in the room. And also, of course, Guy Marzarotti. Good to Boy, have you all. Hi. Well, let's just pick up on that oil spill uh, for a moment um, guy, Marisa, the three of us were down in Orange County for the midterms back in, God, it seems like 100 years ago, but it was 2018. (laughs) But this, you know, the environment is a big issue, but it's also, it's such a purple county, Marisa. I mean, this is something that cuts both ways. You know, there's a lot of undercurrents, so to speak, around around this issue.
4: Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, Saul mentioned just what an iconic surf spot this is, and I do think that you see um, a little bit of a different approach to environmental issues than you might in other more purple or red counties, right? You do have a lot of people who might consider themselves, you know, fiscally conservative but are still interested in having clean beaches um, and not as interested in maybe those economic impacts. But I mean, really, this is a statewide issue, right? And we have seen the governor and and the last couple of governors inch towards fewer and fewer of these rigs and and, and less drilling and and just oil extraction. Um, I have a feeling this is going to set off a whole other, you know, a new debate around that. Um, But at the end of the day, as Saul said, I mean, I went to school at UC Santa Barbara, You can see the rigs from there. There is tar on the beaches. I think you have more opposition in, say, Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County than maybe even in Orange County historically. But this could change that. I mean, this is really a visceral thing that people are coming – you know, face to face with this morning. Um, and I think it, it could have some political, you know, reverberations. And
1: Guy, I know you were mentioned, we were talking before the show about some legislation that Governor Brown signed around some of these issues. But obviously, you can't stop these things from happening. Right. And that was
5: in the wake of the refugio spill uh, off of Santa Barbara. But I, I would say as a political issue, look, we saw leading up to the 2018 midterms earlier that year, Trump proposing opening up oil and gas extraction in California. I think, you know, that became a big issue in Orange County in the lead up to those mid and I think this is another event that could provide a kind of a similar visceral event for the residents there um, as they get ready to again provide crucial votes in next year's midterms.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Katie, you grew up uh, on the coast also down in San Diego, as Marisa did. I mean, the, this this is something that it hasn't I mean, the, the last really serious, I guess you could say, issue uh, was you could go back to the 60s. And that's really uh, the spill off the coast of Santa Barbara. And it does kind of recede in the background, which allows Republican candidates for governor and others and the president to say, oh, Oh, we got to open up the oil drilling. But then you see something like this happen and you're quickly reminded of the risks.
6: Right. And excuse me, um, North San Diego County is a lot like Orange County in that it is uh, more politically conservative. And I I happen to just be uh, in North San Diego County over the summer. And it all of those little towns depend on the beach for their livelihood. That is, you know, much like Huntington Beach, places like um, Cardiff and um, Lucadia. All of those places are just little towns that depend on people coming to the beach. And as Saul also mentioned, some of the wetlands right around that same area in Cardiff, there's a big nature preserve there um, that is, you know, kind of a jewel of that area. And you can already, you know, I'm sure people are already just horrified about the implications for that.
1: Yeah. All right, well, let's go from the West Coast to the East Coast, uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, so many different competing cross-currents there as well, politically. Uh, on Friday, President Biden went to Capitol Hill to make his case and ended up embracing the progressives' point of view on uh, holding off on voting on that trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill until the at least some of the details on the uh, $3.5 trillion bill, which we know is going to be smaller, some of those ideas are uh, sort of ironed out. What are your thoughts, uh, any of you, about uh, the politics of that? Because you've got some of the moderates saying, what is he doing? You know, he he was there and he should be whipping votes for his bill, the infrastructure bill, and he seemed to flip.
4: I mean, I think it makes total sense. He wants both. It's not just one or the other to him. This is his entire agenda. And he can't get both without the progressives. I mean – you know, Pelosi did make an agreement that, you know, with these deadlines, we've now blown through with the progressive, or the moderates last week. But I think from the president's point of view, you know, he, already has a lot of credibility with the center. He has been working over the past year to build that credibility with the left. And I think that ultimately they do hold the keys. um, And and there's a lot more of them to some extent, right, than there are of the moderates. And I think what you're seeing, you know, I think some of the reaction to that meeting was maybe – A misreading of the kind of cards by some of those centrists, especially in the House.
1: Yeah. Well, I think also, I mean, Pelosi, we've talked many times uh, about her acumen when it comes to strategy. And you have to think she and Biden talked it over. Like, you know, this wasn't something he did without discussing it with, you know, the most powerful Democrat in Congress. Uh, And so she may not know what the end game is yet, but clearly this is something that she must have signed off on, I would
5: think. Right. But I still think the most fascinating dynamic and the the hardest one to put together for for Biden will be in the Senate with uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, and really the fact that despite both having this label as moderates or centrists, they both have at least expressed so far very different aims on what they want to get out of this legislation.
1: Some say Cinema hasn't expressed her aims publicly, right? Well, at all.
5: But I mean, I would say you know, despite being both you know moderate uh, senators in, in states that have been difficult for Democrats, Manchin has been pretty clear that he wants this to be something that's paid for, that he wants this to be, you know, he, he he's fine with rolling back some of the Trump tax cuts if it means playing, paying for a plan that's really targeted on low-income Americans. Cinema, on the other hand, I think has been most resistant to the fact of raising taxes and having any, you know, higher corporate tax increases or income tax increases. So how to kind of thread that needle will be fascinating. There's
1: a pretty hilarious uh, portrayal of her on Saturday Night Live, the cold open on Saturday. It's available on YouTube if you want to go check it out. All right. We have much, much more to talk about with KQD's politics team. And we invite you to join us. eight six six. 733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you're old school and you want to use email, you can do that too. It's forum at kqed.org. I'm Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. Stick around. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim, and with me is the whole gang from the KQED Politics and Government team: Guy Marzorati, Katie Orr, and Marisa Lagos, who also, by the way, my co-host on Political Breakdown. Um, we are we having a lively chat during the break there uh, about, you, you know, somebody said to me over the weekend that what the progressives are doing uh, is essentially what the Freedom Caucus did when the Republicans were in charge. They're taking, they're pushing the envelope. They're, you know, like taking their case and making sure that their priorities are included in the legislation. Is that what we're seeing here? Is
4: I mean, I think it's a little different in the sense that, A, their agenda is the president's agenda. So it's not as if they're coming out of left field with a set of policies that nobody else in Washington and that don't have, I mean, very deep support among the American public. Um, but, you know, certainly I think that Democrats have taken some lessons from the power that we saw Republicans really build over the last decade and a half. And I think some of the tactics might be similar. I think it's I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I mean, I, I think
5: they're representing the, the majority of the Democratic caucus, right, right? Is in line with these policies. It's not as if this is a rump part of the majority. This is the majority and how they express it, ninety-six percent of the caucus is for the the approach they're doing. And I think it is a little bit of a game respect game in that Pelosi is seeing these uh women leading this this caucus, Pramil Jayapal count the votes I mean they really put her in a position where they said we have we've you know done our homework we've we've counted the votes and we have enough to put a halt on the path that the infrastructure bill was going on
6: well and I think two progressives probably have something on their side in that you know for instance the child tax care credit people are already getting those checks I get it so I get a check every month. <laughs> I really appreciate it. If that were to go away, I mean, certainly for people who don't make a lot of money, that's a huge hit. How are you going to be the one in charge saying, oh, sorry, we couldn't get a deal on that. You know, hope you liked your five months or yeah. whatever.
1: Yeah, no, there will be some hell to pay. Um, we're going to get to safe stuff in a minute. But before we do, the SCOTUS term begins today. Brett Kavanaugh tested positive apparently for COVID over the weekend. He'll be joining remotely, but the rest of the, the gang will be uh, at the court, nobody from the public. But a couple of really hot button issues this term, uh, including uh, abortion, a Mississippi law that uh, really goes beyond what uh, some of the precedent at the Supreme Court on abortion has called for in terms of uh, how long you, you can wait till you get an abortion and then guns as well. Katie, what do you see, especially for? We've seen over the weekend just in the Bay Area uh, and other parts of California, some of these protests from uh, women's groups. Uh, how animating an issue do you think this could be for for the for Democrats in particular?
6: I mean, I think it's a huge issue, and I do think that it's an issue that people already know how the Supreme Court is likely going to rule. I mean, I think there are justices that were put on the Supreme Court with the uh, intention of overturning Roe versus Wade. And I don't think anyone who is um, pro-choice is unaware of that. And so how is it, how are you going to mobilize after that? I think you're already seeing people come out in March because they, they see what's happening in Texas and they see where things are headed. So it could be a huge driver for people in the Midterms, but it could also have some very real ramifications for women in in the country that well, already you know, is in Texas. Exactly. I mean, yeah. And that will not go away just because of one election.
4: Yeah, I, and I just think beyond the short term political impacts, there's a really interesting thing happening right now. I mean, we saw several justices come out in recent weeks and make some speeches in which they attempted to sort of defend the court, but I think had the effect of actually undermining people's sort of trust in this as a, a third co-equal and separate branch of government. Um, it's sort of like vow doth protest Protest too much, much. you know, and I think that when you combine that with the kind of broader culture wars we're seeing and just how nasty the last few fights have been and the possibility of another potential opening on the court, depending on what, you know, Justice Breyer does, that this could really, you know, give fuel to some of the calls on the left, for example, for expanding the court or for, you know, making term limits. I mean, I think that there is a point at which these justices by both their decisions and their public Uh, You know, statements are actually hurting their own cause.
1: Well, we have seen Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who, you know, many people thought would be one of the votes eventually to undermine Roe v. Wade, siding with the liberals on several issues. He's only he's now he's in the minority. But you do. There is that effect of joining the court and whether it's because of who you go to cocktail parties with in D.C., where you live, who you talk to. Uh, there is this effect of sort of moderating uh, the views sometimes, not all the time. Not Clarence Thomas, Alito; they have not been. They seem to be immune from that. But it, it is difficult sometimes to predict exactly what a justice is going to do.
4: Yeah, it is. But I think that it doesn't feel as if the sort of moderation of someone like Roberts is being followed by by the new justices like Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett, and just the comments that Coney Barrett made publicly, I think, are only give more sort of fuel to the critics. Yeah, yeah, I
6: really I agree with Marisa. I really think this is going to culminate in the Democrats trying to make some structural changes to the Supreme Court.
1: All right. Well, let's uh, come back to California. Lots going on here. Last Friday, Governor Newsom uh, issued a mandate for school kids, K through 12. that will be phased in after the FDA gives final approval to vaccines for younger children. They're thinking maybe July of 2022 for Seven through 12th graders. Um, What what are the politics of this, Katie? Uh, You live in a slightly more purple part of California than we do. (laughs) What are you hearing from people up there?
6: Uh, Already um, on my You know, Facebook moms group. There are already people creating different groups for like how they're going to deal with homeschooling their kids. People are already talking about pulling their children out, and it's not just you know these aren't getting one or two. Like, oh yeah, it's like oh no, we're already doing it. Come over here. Let's. So I think this is going to be a huge issue. I mean, we've already seen protests in um, Sacramento over mandating vaccines that have been around for decades. Uh, The mandate for a vaccine that has been around for what about a year now. I. I think, um, you know, right or wrong, he's going to get a lot of pushback from. But it's going to be,
1: I would think, pushback from the same areas that voted against him in 2018. And And this is,
4: I mean, statistically, this is a very vocal minority, a small minority. And I also wonder if the kind of way it's structured is going to help the governor and maybe not take off the pressure immediately at local school boards, because you're seeing, you know, just some really terrifying things happening. The Proud Boys showing up at the Rockland School Board shutting it down. But, you know, the way this was structured, it's part of normal regulations. It is not a bill that people are going to have a chance to go to the Capitol and protest yet. 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 But also, <laughs> it's it's phased in as the FDA approves stuff. So we're thinking maybe next summer by the time this is a requirement. I do think that some of this initial anger and I mean, Katie's right. I got a text from a friend in the foothills this weekend who's a teacher who said. Said people are freaking out. And she said, you know, I expect folks to just pull their kids into private school, but this covers private mm-hmm. school. So it really does set up this interesting
5: Checkmate. choice. And I mean, this is also, I think, where you look at the recall for Newsom as kind of like a uh, temperature check, right? He looked at, he can relatively say that the anger that's contained around these vaccine mandates is limited to the same, you know, however much percent as as past mandates and the overall opposition is limited to the same that has opposed him for years. So I think it's almost like that served as a mandate for mandates. And I think he, he now has the wind at his back when it comes to these taking the lead on these kind of public health measures. Uh, Katie?
6: mandate for, Guy is coming out with the phrases today and I love it. <laughs> mandates for mandates. Uh, <laughs> uh, I do think another interesting um, part of this is the requirement that teachers be vaccinated no more testing instead of um getting the vaccine right and i think that it will be very interesting uh, to see how that plays out. You might see some teachers who say, sorry,
4: but like, look out. at New York. OK, we have a lawsuit happening that's getting national attention and 97 percent of teachers are vaccinated there or something. I mean, so it's it, I, again, I think we really have to do put this in perspective. If you look at both the number of Californians that have gotten vaccinated and the number who support a lot of these mandates, it's less controversial than I think. It sounds in some way. Well,
1: it's interesting, too, because a lot of folks who've seen this in law enforcement, cops, sheriffs, uh, the prison guards, peace officers, uh, have been relying on the religious exemption as a reason not to get the shot. But there really are no major religions that are saying, <laughs> don't God get the, the shot. Is like
4: get the shot, right? <laughs> Well, and also you do. I mean, the thing that I am sort of mystified by from a rational perspective is that a lot of the parents and, and public officials who are so upset about this already have vaccine mandates. And I understand that this is a different mechanism and it's a newer vaccine. But I mean, I have kids, Katie, you have kids, dozens and dozens of vaccinations mm. you have to get just when to go to school. When are tiny. When they're tiny, yes. yeah. And and so it's just, it's so fascinating that you have such just uh, spirited pushback. Yeah. Well, I
5: think in the short term, this really probably applies itself more as just kind of a scheduling logistics issue, whether it's teachers. I mean, there's many schools right now that are running up against a shortage of substitute teachers trying to make sure they're filling all the days. We heard from the SFPD chief, Bill Scott. He's trying to scramble and put together a logistical force with the knowledge that a lot of people will have to go on leave because of the vaccination policy. So I think if we're going to see any yeah. impact in the short term, it's really just kind of like a scheduling scramble. I think you're right at the
4: at the local level and law enforcement fire departments, uh, CDCR prisons like that seems like it will probably be more disruptive to some point. Um, and, you know, I do think that. I'm, I'm expressing this shock, but maybe I shouldn't. I mean, people don't like being told what to do, especially <laughs> by politicians they don't like. Right. right.
1: All right. We're talking politics with KQD's politics and government team. Marisa Lagos, Katie Orr, and Guy Marzorati, and me, Scott Schaefer, and I'm here for Mina Kim, and we want to hear from you. Give us a ring at 866-733-6786. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what's going on in D.C. Are the progressives pushing too hard, not hard enough? Uh, And what do you think of the COVID mandate for vaccinating younger kids once the FDA signs off on that? Give us a call, 866-733-6786, or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED. Forum. Let's go to Sandy now in San Francisco. Sandy, welcome.
7: Hi. Good morning. Um, I know in your intro you mentioned housing, and I was wondering if anything is being done to stop the big investors from buying up residential housing, which increases the cost where individual home buyers are being priced out. And this isn't only happening in California, it's happening across the country. Did any of the bills contain anything about this and or if they didn't, what can we do about it? Yeah,
1: it's a great question. Um, You know, I'm not sure, I don't know if any of us here, it's not something that we, it's a very specific question, but we do know that just, I think it was last week, uh, the governor signed a package of 27 different bills. They were more aimed at, I think, uh, sort of carrots and sticks around building housing and helping homeless people with mental health problems. But, you know, one thing we have seen with this governor compared to Jerry Brown Uh, They're different in many ways, but one is that, you know, Jerry Brown, I think, was always a very skeptical guy of whether or not government had really any, you know, role or hope of solving the housing crisis in California, and he sort of was kind of, I would say, pulled along, kicking and screaming a little bit, and he did sign a bunch of bills, but at one point he said, okay, now don't send me any more.
5: Yeah, I think he was concerned largely that just, you know, funding more affordable housing would do little if there wasn't enough done on the regulatory side. I think the way Newsom has approached it is, is interesting, even going beyond legislation. I think he's really focused on trying to give political cover to local governments to go along on their own and approve more plans for housing. I mean, he's we saw that from the first month he was in office and he started calling out local Local cities that hadn't done enough enough to to approve housing on their own which I think in the long run might might have the effect of saying okay I'll take the heat for this and I'm gonna let these local governments plan on their own for for that kind of development
1: Sandy sorry we can't give you more specific answer than that but uh, appreciate the call Um, you know it does seem like um, the homeless issue I mean it's been a big issue and he's uh, Newsom has acknowledged it from the very beginning um, and again in this round of funding the uh, course California had a 80 billion dollar surplus so there is extra money but you know here in San Francisco we've seen this problem so many things tried to solve it and Newsom himself when he was mayor tried care on cash it did get about five or seven thousand people off the streets but you know there's an, an then there was an additional 12 that showed up I mean same sort of question I mean is, is this something that you know this governor is going to be able to say i not I fixed it, but I, I at least made a dent in what the problem
6: is. I mean, he's, I think to his credit, he is trying. Um, he has taken, you know, during uh, COVID, he uh, had a program where people, unhoused people could uh, apply and be put in hotel rooms to live, and so they weren't on the street, um, and they have, that was Project Room Key, and they've trans just transitioned that into something they're calling Project Home Key to try and help people stay there. The state's been built, buying up, um, like, motels around, around the state to try and turn these into sites that um, uh, unhoused people can live in and eventually, trans uh, transition into like more permanent housing, but it is it, it's such like an intractable issue. It almost feels like and
1: um. Well, th- even here in San Francisco, I mean, we're, we're which is you know sort of famous for its you know compassion. Uh, you know, just getting one of those navigation sites built down near the Embarcadero, the neighbors sued, they fought it, uh, used probably sequoia and all kinds of other things to try to to stop it. I mean, ultimately, it went through. But, uh, you know, the people that want to stop things have a lot of tools.
6: Right. And you're seeing more and more around the state, like, for instance, in Sacramento, the the city setting aside areas like designated campsites almost where people can put their tents up and at least it's um, it's secure. There are, you know, uh, restroom facilities uh, You just try and give people a better quality of life. I do wonder is as if... Um, if we go forward and the the issue just persists and persists, if governments are going to be less um, receptive to people's uh, concerns, uh, in, I mean, residents' concerns and say, sorry, this is a problem, we're building the shelter.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, too, because, you know... Everything in California is controversial. So, like, I was just reading this morning about the debate in Berkeley over building on People's Park. And um, there are groups, of course, who are opposed to this development, which is aimed at both students and homeless folks. And, I mean, I was just reflecting on my time, you know, visiting there, and, like, at a certain point is a park, are people using a park if it is being used for other, you know, purposes, like basically living there? Um, and, And it just speaks, I think, to how challenging this is, especially in our more urban centers uh, where
6: people are on top of each other and everybody has a different opinion about what the right answer is. Well, and I will say, too, I live in a more suburban setting and there have uh, there were a lot of um, encampments along the freeways by where I live and uh, Caltrans has come and been moving those. And so obviously those people need somewhere to go. And so they go into you know suburban neighborhoods or downtown SAC. So it's, it's almost a, it's like I hate to say whack-a-mole, but it's like you, you pick yeah. it, you clean it up one yeah. place, and then op- people need a place to stay. So yeah. they're you know, they trying to protect themselves, and they go somewhere they yeah. think they'll be safe.
1: Talking politics, state, national, and some local as well, give us a call if you want to join us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email us. It's forum at kqed.org. And let's go now to Berkeley. in uh, And Corey, Welcome. Corey, are you there
7: hi i am here Go right um, ahead. I have, okay i'm really concerned because i just heard this conversation and i hear you guys kind of laughing about the fact that all of us are pushing back about having our kids vaccinated and it's a scheduling problem and all this stuff it's like this is not a scheduling problem this is a very serious basically a sacrifice of an entire generation of kids. What what evidence do you have for that?
1: What does that mean? What do you mean when you say that?
7: We have no evidence that this vaccine is safe for the long haul. We have no evidence what the long-term side effects are, and our children are being forced to be vaccinated for basically a different part of the population, age group, it's not a danger to children. And my children have to be vaccinated for something that's not even a danger to them. We don't and nobody, know that. Well, there, have, there have in
1: fact been children in the ICU and uh, some some have died if they have underlying conditions.
7: And another variant might be a, da- a danger we, to children. We have no evidence of the long-term safety of this vaccine. And you guys can go <clears throat> on and on about funny it is that we are pushing back. but The fact is nobody knows the long-term side effects, and you guys are acting like this is nothing. Look at other countries of the world. In Sweden, they're not doing this. Look at some other evidence before you just laugh at parents. Yeah, I don't you know think we're I, laughing. Yeah. I think
1: that we're trying to point out that there is a, a relatively small number of folks who are relying on information that is not especially re- reliable in often cases. it amplified in some of the media that uh, have been discredited by talk show hosts and Uh, people who make a lot of money uh, being on the radio and being online, uh, pushing information that is incorrect. And, you know, I think just to remind everybody, the governor said that these will not be mandatory for school kids until the FDA gives its final approval, which it hasn't yet. All right, we're going to continue this conversation, not necessarily about COVID, but perhaps. But we want you to join us. 866-733-6786. The number to call 866-733-6786. Tomorrow on Forum with Mina Kim, legal scholar, teacher, and advocate Anita Hill joins us to talk about her new book, Believing, our 30-year journey to end gender-based violence and to reflect on her experiences at the center of the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court confirmation hearings 30 years ago this month. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim, and we're talking politics with KQED's politics and government team, Guy Marzorati, Katie Orr, and Marisa Lagos. And uh, give us a call if you want to join us. Uh, A wide array of things to chat about uh, in D.C. and here in California, 866-733-6786. And let's go to George in San Jose. George, welcome.
2: Hi, Scott, Guy, uh, and Marisa. And, and Katie. Katie? <laughs> I didn't mean to leave Katie out. Um, I'm, I'm hearing over the uh, weekend that uh, President Biden is now supporting tying the two infrastructure bills together. And this brings up the obvious question is, why did the Democratic leadership split the infrastructure bill in the first place? It seems kind of bizarre given that the progressive candidate Bernie nearly won the election and received tens of millions of votes. So, so the proof. The progressives obviously have a lot of
1: power. They do, and I think you can credit Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren and others for really uh, putting their agenda toward the top of the priority list. Uh, But you know, infrastructure. You know, I think Joe Biden came into office saying, "Hey, I know how the Senate works, the Congress works. I'm a deal maker. I can bring Republicans and Democrats together." And I think there was probably a pressure to show that, in fact, that could that could happen, that Washington could still get things done.
5: Right, and I think if you hear from progressive members of Congress, they would say that they never thought the two were split. I mean, Premier Paul was on CNN yesterday saying they always felt like these two things were going to be brought forward together. They always felt like the deadline that was set on the infrastructure bill would come when there was a deal on the larger social policy that Biden was pushing. I think they were, their expectation and continues to be that once you remove the infrastructure bill off the table, that you lose all yeah. kind of leverage with moderates. Well, and
4: also I think there I mean... There's like the boring answer about the mechanisms and a budget bill, reconciliation bill, and the filibuster and all that stuff. But there's like a practical thing, which is. You want to give the carrot to both centrist Democrats and some Republicans who want to vote for infrastructure, but are no way going to necessarily support this other stuff. So why, as the president, wouldn't you give that ability for members to go back to their district and talk up something that is sort of nonpartisanly universally popular, which is, I mean, we've been God, we've been talking about having an infrastructure bill for like as long as I've been alive. Right. I
1: think also the Democrats have tried to expand the definition of infrastructure to beyond just bridges and airports and ports and roads and to talk about things like human infrastructure and broadband. And I think they have done a good job of at least putting that into the conversation, uh, clearly the $3.5 trillion bill that the Democrats, the progressives are pushing is going to have to come way down uh, to at least, I would say, down to by by half, probably less than that.
5: Yeah. And I mean, look, it's hard to message all of those things that they are putting into this social policy bill. But the reason for that is that the way that the system is set up is they will only get one shot at passing legislation like this. They have to do it through reconciliation. None of these policies on their own, however popular they might be among voters, is going to get 60 votes and so I think yes it is inherently a messaging challenge to put forward what how do we tie all these different threads together into one single message but legislatively this is the only avenue they have
1: all right George thanks for that uh, let's go back to the phones I'll give out the number one more time and that's 866-733-6786 and let's go now to San Francisco and is it Kira is that how you say your name
7: uh yes Kira
1: yeah go right ahead
7: um, I was. I had a question about the um, San Francisco school board. I know that there is, like, a, there's a, been a petition around to recall this uh, school board after last year, um, but I was wondering if or how it could be possible to make it so that the school board is no longer a ballot issue and not voted on as far as being elected, because um, it's my understanding that a lot of people don't, vote on it in San Francisco and like if it could just be a mayoral appointed thing or something like that and what the process would be to kind of eliminate it being a an elected, yeah,
1: and, and maybe have the accountability rest with the mayor, the board of supervisors, or some combination. They do that in a lot of big cities where it is not a solely single elected office. And, uh, Guy, you've been following the recall. Uh, the people trying to recall three of the school board members uh, have submitted their petitions, their signatures. Looks very likely that that is going to qualify.
5: Right, and to Kira's point, this has actually been a you know this was an idea that came up in the in the initial stages of the school board recall well maybe we can change this to a mayoral appointment system and it has been done in other cities like chicago and it's always a, a fight to make it happen because people however little attention they pay to local school board seats however large the undervote is so many people vote and leave those races blank people still don't like to have that power stripped away from them. At the end of the day, they want to feel like, you know, they're engaged in in their community in some way. They have direct control over that. Another idea was to maybe split the board into districts. Right now, San Francisco school board is chosen citywide. This would kind of narrow it down. So perhaps in an ideal world, you would have more direct connection with your local school board member. I think at this point, the only idea that's moving ahead is having these three members potentially recalled.
1: Well, and I think also, uh, you know, this is one of those issues that's easy to understand. what triggered this for a lot of people was that eight-and-a-half, nine-hour meeting online uh, over a year ago where they spent seven hours talking about which schools to rename and which they had a lot of their facts wrong. Uh, and then finally, uh, after seven and a half hours, they decided to talk about reopening the schools. And I think a lot of, for a lot of people and the mayor, Lyndon Breed, I mean, that was really a crystallizing point for for her.
4: But I think this speaks to a bigger issue we have in local elections. Um, you see the same thing with judicial elections. People just don't know what they're voting for. It's hard to understand the issues. And separating this from judicial, we have seen historically in San Francisco and elsewhere that these, you know, school board Positions are often used to sort of burnish political credentials so that folks can run for higher office. And I think the conversation happening here in San Francisco, which is two part, there are there is this recall attempt and then there is a conversation uh, occurring, I think, at City Hall around the question of whether there should be a charter amendment to change this to an appointment process. Um, but, you know. Within that, I think there's a lot of other questions about then who should be on the board? What does an expert look like? You know, is there a parent seat? Is there more than one parent seat? Are, are there students on the board? What do You know, all of these things um, that I think I, I hope this conversation continues because regardless of where it ends up, people are more engaged than I've ever seen them in these this issue. And I think that that in itself is a good thing.
1: Yeah. All right, Kira, thanks very much for the call. Uh, let's go down to Long Beach now. And Christopher, welcome.
3: Hello?
1: Yeah, hi, go right ahead.
3: Hi, I just had a question about cinema, and recently it seems like she's just stalling for time. So how come they haven't punished her or tried to coerce her with taking away her committee spots?
0: Well,
1: you know, they got 50 votes, and she's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's part of the reason. But it is interesting. We uh, Last week on Political Breakdown, Reese and I talked to Anna Eschew. Who served in the House with and cinema? Threw some
4: shade. Yeah, she threw some shade, and you
1: know, we asked, like, has she changed? Is she like, is she different now than she was? And you know, after a long pause, Anna, she said, "No, she's uh-huh. the same." And I think pointed out that she's, you know, never been a particularly good negotiator. But you know, you do wonder. What is her end game here? Is she just trying to get attention? Is she trying to get reelected? She's not up, I don't think, for another few years. Right.
6: I mean, I you you have to assume that she's trying to go for moderate Arizona voters.
1: She says she's trying to be, you know, in the mold of John McCain, but McCain voted with Republicans ninety percent of the time.
6: Right. And uh, and by not, you know, making your your. Your feelings know your goal, your end game clear. She's attracting actually a lot of negative attention. Um, There was a clip of her being protested outside her classroom at Arizona State University, where she uh, teaches. And uh, protesters were saying, You know, we knocked on doors for you. We came out for you to help you get elected. And now you're turning your back on us. Even followed her into the restroom.
4: (laughs) And Stephen Miller came to her defense, which is not necessarily the best
6: look for a Democrat. So I, you know, I I feel like her political future, not not too clear in Arizona. Well, you
1: know, and there is talk of having a, a Democratic primary challenge to her, somebody to her left. But, you know, she, that it is a very purple state. Unlike West Virginia, where the Democrats don't have any hope of electing anybody other than Joe Manchin, I don't think. And, you know, I think he is a, he is a Democrat. You know, he's not somebody I don't think who's going to flip and become a Republican. Uh, but, you know, clearly, at least he has put on the table what he's willing to vote for or consider voting for. I think the frustration with cinema is that she hasn't really done that. And she's avoiding the media. Uh, so even though she's getting a lot of media attention, she's not really talking to the media.
4: I just you got to wonder, like, what does Chuck Schumer know? What does you know, Nancy Pelosi know? What does Joe Manchin know? Because they have been talking, um, and I, I would assume to our caller's question that you know they don't feel like it is at that point yet, right? You, it's very clear that there is not an interest by leadership to sort of publicly shame her, and that is probably um, a strategic position both based on her personality right like everyone responds to pressure differently but also just the situation in washington they need the 50 votes like you know kind of blackballing one of your own team members doesn't really help everybody's you get a there. king and a queen yeah. right? exactly. and i mean
5: to me this this kind of uh, theatrics are, are not really engaging substantially in laying out what she wants Speaks, I think, as someone who wants moderation more as a brand than as actually a political philosophy. Yeah, like like, what is her philosophy? Yeah, I think she's, I, I would imagine perhaps she's looking at her constituency as if, you know, maybe these people aren't paying really close attention to the legislation that's being worked out. And if all they come away with is my senator approached this in a moderate fashion. She, you know, didn't just go right along with the party. She held out a little bit. I think, you know, that's something you can take into a campaign if people aren't paying attention to the, okay, what, is she, what kind of policies is she actually passing up in the process? Yeah, and
1: I think NPR did a, a story last week talking to voters. You know, of course, it wasn't a scientific sample, but yes, that's exactly what people were. They liked the fact that she was standing up and being her own person, being a maverick, you know, like John McCain was. So we'll see how that plays out. Christopher, thanks so much for the call. Let me give out the number again. It's 8- Six six seven three three sixty seven eighty six. if you've got something on your mind you want to talk about the key, with the KQD politics team. And let's go now to San Francisco. Kevin, welcome.
3: Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, go right ahead. Hi. Uh, uh, Joe Biden was the most moderate candidate running in the Democratic primary. Bernie Sanders and the progressives wanted Medicare for all so that the 30 million people in the United States that have no health care would be covered. Joe Biden did not want that, so he's only fighting in this program in this reconciliation bill to to adjust the Medicare age down to sixty. Hillary was running on moving it down to fifty five. So, um, you know, also, my, I guess my question is, why are Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin called moderates when they are corrupt? Uh, Kirsten Cinema is is uh, meeting with pharma uh, executives over the weekend and raising up to three quarters of a million dollars. Uh, Joe, Joe Manchin is in bed with the coal industry and gets $555,000 of dividends every year. They're not moderates because Joe Biden's program is moderate. It's not progressive. It, it, yeah, and, no, and it, yeah, it's a good point. They are corrupt inside and out. And they're, they're, they're the worst, they're the most egregious example of of our politicians that are are bought by donors and I don't understand why the mainstream medium a- including you is not is not why are they not calling them corrupt well and, I think
1: and, corrupt and, is a is a pejorative a word <laughs> you do need to have some, like a little bit more to go on to call somebody corrupt I mean you know you could say politics is inherently corrupt in the system that we have because it's it's sort of legalized bribery in a way right
4: well we had an earlier caller asking like why you know I, I like I think this speaks to the the balancing act that both leadership in the House and Senate and the president are doing right This caller is right. This is not what progressives wanted. It's not the whole loaf. They've already compromised. And I think that's exactly what Joe Biden is speaking to when he goes in there and says, I'm not going to bring either of these up until I have the votes on both of them. So, you know, that is the way you make progress. I know people on both sort of flanks do not like it, but generally, compromise means that nobody is 100% happy.
1: All right, Kevin, thanks very much for the call. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in today for Mina Kim. Well, uh, I do want to talk about some of the legislation the governor signed. And uh, among them, uh, last week in Los Angeles, uh, he signed a bill, SB 2, along with other bills that are aimed at law enforcement uh, reform. Uh, SB 2 really coming out of the the George Floyd murder and the aftermath of that. Uh, And, Maurice, I know you've covered sort of a lot of these criminal justice issues. This one will create a process uh, for getting rid of, for decertifying Cops uh, yeah. that are uh, really do some of the most egregious things. And California really was only one of about four states that did not already have a process. So this is not something we've been leading on at all.
4: It's not. And I think, not to be cliche, but the devil's going to be in the details in terms of how this is actually rolled out. Um, In order for this to happen, you know, you're first going to need departments to step up and actually go after cops and and investigate them when they're accused of misconduct. And I think that is happening in a lot of the bigger agencies, but we still see some huge gaps. Um, But what this is going to do, or at least hopefully that what what folks are aiming for it to do is prevent something that KQED has documented really clearly uh, in recent years as we've seen more records open up Um of, of police misconduct, which is preventing somebody from getting fired from one agency for doing something illegal or out of line and then walking down to the next county and just getting a new job um, with all the benefits that go with it. And so I do think it's a big win. It wasn't, you know, again, it was a compromise. It wasn't everything either side wanted. Uh, police groups aren't super thrilled with it, although they had said they could support this idea and they have been at the table. And I think that that in itself is a big step forward.
1: Another bill that the governor signed, AB 1237 by Phil Ting uh, will require the California Department of Justice to share data on gun violence and gun deaths with the University of UC Davis, which does research. And uh, Katie, you've done reporting on this in the past. Uh, the former attorney general uh, Javier Becerra uh, was very reluctant to turn over that information. It was never quite clear why.
6: Right, he never did. He his office said that it had it was related to um, privacy concerns because some of the records do have identifying information um, contained within them. Uh, researchers at UC Davis say you know they need that um, information because you're looking for specific records linked to certain kinds of gun crimes. So they couldn't do their job if they didn't have all of that information. It really was a, an odd decision by. Sarah to uh to just stop sharing these these records. Uh, researchers say they've been getting them for decades. And to your point, you know lawmakers thought it was odd too. So they you know have put this law in place now that says. They yeah. have to give them that information. Well, and the
1: NRA says this is going to lead to biased research. Uh, but, of course, the NRA has really opposed any research into gun violence and some Right. Of the I mean,
6: that's one of the reasons that UC Davis's center is um, kind of notable, because there is such a lack of uh, research into gun violence at the national level. And, and in fact, the state uh, voted to fund this organization in 2016, which is also, again, head-scratching why... Took so long. Yeah, and they wouldn't give them the information they needed to yeah. make it work. All
1: right, we're get, getting to the end of the hour, but let's see if we can squeeze in one more call. Singh in San Jose, welcome.
2: Hi, good morning. Uh, I've been really appreciating the show today. Uh, I appreciate everything you've talked about. I just want to mention that uh, the water year ending September 30th was some of the driest on record in uh, parts of California. So has there been a new legislation or has there been talk about some more efforts to address drought.
1: Yeah, that's something that the governor is really going to have to grapple with. And, you know, if it goes into a second year of severe drought, uh, we're really going to have some problems. I know the governor has issued, uh, not mandatory yet, but uh, sort of advising that counties uh, cut back and water districts cut back on allocations. But Which didn't do much. It didn't I mean, do much. I mean, in, in Southern California, I think in particular, there was sort of a okay, fine, thanks, we're going to continue washing the car and watering the lawn.
5: Yeah, and I think a lot of us were thinking about maybe September 15th, 16th, 17th being possible days for announcing mandatory uh, water (laughs) cutbacks. Post recall. Yeah, with the election (laughs) behind them. Because, yeah, you know, the the efforts that Newsom announced over the summer didn't really uh, have a huge effect. I will say us you know residents of the bay area did a lot better job than folks in southern california uh on residential uh water cutbacks but it might end up being a situation pretty shortly that you know governor jerry brown faced, where you have to move towards more mandatory action
1: yeah you know you think about the drought the pandemic now there's an oil spill off the coast Uh, you have to wonder gavin newsom not having the best luck uh (laughs) jerry brown in a lot of ways had very good luck in terms of the economy and of course some of that was his own doing Uh, in terms of raising taxes and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure Gavin Newsom is wondering when he he gets his good role. Of course, you could say the recall maybe was a a pretty good card in his favor. All right, that's going to do it for this hour. Thanks uh, to the entire KQD politics and government team, Guy Marzorati, Katie Orr, and Marisa Lagos. I'm Scott Schaefer, here today for Mina Kim, who is back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your calls and your comments. Have a great day.